going to be bringing the word in a second here, but I do want to add my uh, my ditto to what Greg shared there as well. You know, we often call ourselves a family church or want to be a church family, and like your family, we never have any conflicts in anything we do. But not to make light, but uh, we are hopeful that the God of all peace will help us together to find his best plan for us as we work through church life. Josh, can you set that for 35 minutes for me? The other thing I want to just do is that, as many of you know, uh, Dave Kaler had a surgery this week, and he went through the surgery and got back home yesterday, I think, but why don't we pray for him? He had a couple of tumors removed. They've shared about that quite openly, so I don't think I'm uncovering anybody. But why don't we just pray as a church? Having the surgery completed doesn't mean you're out of the woods. And so let's just pray for a great recovery for him. So I'm going to invite you to pray with me. I'll lead us. And if we want to say amen together at the end, I think that'd be great. So, Father, we are so grateful that Dave got in quickly, that the procedure didn't go as long as it could, but was actually about as short as it gets. We're grateful that Dave is back home with Lynn. And Lord, we're just grateful for a good report thus far. And Father, we ask together that you would see him through to recovery, that the procedure would do everything it was intended to do, and that you would really restore Dave. Lord, we know Dave has a huge heart to be fruitful for you with his life. He's got a huge heart for the work in Rwanda still. And Lord, we ask that you would completely restore him for your glory, for Dave and Lynn's good, for our joy together. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, it's great to see you here. Um, I don't even need to watch the news anymore when it comes to restriction announcements. All I need to do is be aware when all of a sudden a bunch of people want to talk to me. Like, Friday Friday at around 10 or 11, I start getting that, we're praying for you guys messages, and the I need to talk to you right now messages, and I didn't clue in, but I should have just clued in, oh, there was an announcement, because I don't uh, track Steinbeck online that much. And so, it's just really funny, in one sense. Um, so, thanks for everybody being really faithful to make sure I know what I need to know to be a great leader here. You're very, very doing a great job. Um, but I think in all the sovereignty of Godness, it really did inspire the message today. And part of that is, you know, we, we've, we've been through this before, and we know that every time there's an announcement, uh, uh, an earthquake kind of goes through the, the church. And sometimes it's a 3.1 on the Richter scale. Sometimes it's a 5.7 on the Richter scale, sometimes it's a 9.8, but every time they say anything, a wave goes through the church. And we have, as a church thus far, aimed to be militantly neutral when it comes to what to do with this stuff. We've wanted to do our best to uh, comply without becoming police for whatever regs are coming our way, um, so that nobody feels like they've lost the church family because of their own convictions and limitations and stuff like that. And I'm sure we've fallen off the fence one way or another, but thus far, we've attempted to keep fellowship and Jesus the goal in a world where everything's going upside down and people are dividing over this stuff. And we've done okay. People will often ask, you know, where the, the line is that we won't cross as a group. And for me, and you know, we haven't gotten there, but for me for sure, like requiring vaccine passports at the door would be something that I wouldn't be able to participate with. And so I'm really grateful thus far that the government's just allowed us to work with limits and stuff like that. And we need to process this. Friday afternoon announcements aren't great for being able to have the, the elders get together and have good discussions, especially when people are away camping. So we haven't processed. And so you're going to have to wait for us for official stuff. But I th- think, I don't even know if the percentage change is going to, it's not even going to impact us because even at 33%, instead of 50%, 
you can all still come. Like, we, we, ha- we aren't at 33% capacity today. And so I don't see Sunday changing. But the community groups have definitely been hit, and we're not sure exactly what the best way to respond is there yet. But we've got a good beginning, but we're going to still need to process. All that being said, with the recent announcement and the fact that it's like super localized, and especially asking for, you know, divisions in like families and stuff like this, uh, on the one perspective of health and slowing down the transfer of a sickness which is serious, and we know and love people who have been seriously impacted by it, um, requiring people to treat medical treatments as the most important thing in their lives as far as getting together does seem to me like a grievous thing. And I'm not trying to offend anybody by saying that, but I do think it's like, it's uh, something I think everyone should say wow to, one way or the other, whether you ultimately support it or not. I think everyone should say wow about it. And... I think that we should all, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, um, ramp up our hearts to be super great disciples of Jesus in response to this kind of stuff. However that ends up looking for you, I think that ultimately we need to go, wow, and boy, I sure need to be an awesome disciple of Jesus in response to all this stuff. So today we're going, talking about Above the Divide, I'd like to thank Everybody involved for providing the topic this Sunday. I was very undecided what I was speaking about until Friday afternoon. And we're going to talk about bitterness today. One of my favorite podcasters... I'm going to pray. Lord, help me. Lord, help us. Lord, help us. Uh, I think ultimately, Lord, we need to assume that we're still in the school of Christ. And I pray you would help us get at least a B minus. But if you can help us get A's, that would be wonderful. Amen. One of my favorite podcasters in the States was making a point and he, he also is a bit in the middle. You know, he's an older gentleman. He's grateful for the vaccine. He believes that it does have a symptom-mitigating effect for people, which I think is true. It seems true. You know, it would have to be a fairly significant conspiracy <laughs> to, <laughs> to say that the, the vaccines don't do anything and have so many people um, have, have just different statistics. I don't know. I'm not a doctor, so don't, don't like, send me videos about this stuff. But it seems like there is a symptom-mitigating effect for having been vaccinated. And so he's definitely one of the people who's safer because of them. But he was making the point that if the United States government wanted to make sure that any freedom-loving conservative Americans would never get vaccinated they're doing exactly what you'd want to do to drive right-wing people crazy enough to rather die than take the vaccine. I'm going to say that again. If, this is his point, not mine. You can go shoot him if you find him somewhere. His point was, politically, if the left-wing politicians actually wanted their political opponents to die from COVID by not getting vaccinated because they were so furious about how it was being handled and how people were getting forced to take it and how people were getting fired and how you could be a nurse one year and be like treated like you were Jesus himself and then the next year fired like you were worthless because of your status of vaccination. If the left-wing politicians wanted to try to get the right-wing people to get themselves killed by refusing to get a vaccine that might help them if they're older or vulnerable, how would they handle things any different? And the, the reason that stood out to me was because what he was saying is how this was being handled in their culture 
was producing so much bitterness that literally people whose lives in the short term might have been saved by having a symptom-mitigating medicine inside of them are choosing rather to die than to take medicine that's being forced upon them by corrupt and tyrannical leadership. Anybody in southeast Manitoba want to identify with that feeling? And the point this podcaster was saying, which I really appreciated, is he said, you have a job to deal with reality. No matter what that leader is doing or this leader is doing, no matter what this person is saying or that person is saying, there is an unstoppable force called the real world. And you have to deal with that no matter what anybody else is saying. And spiritually what he's saying is, don't let bitterness control your life. Whether you're on the, I hate the tyrants and I'll never be vaccinated side, or whether you're on the, why won't these unvaccinated people stop trying to murder everybody and just get on with it so we can get back to real life, if that's even the goal. Whatever side of the calls for bitterness there is, We still have to deal with the reality of Jesus. And it is grievous. Like, just even for me, and this is just an observation, I'm not starting a fight, but it does seem weird that over this issue, the healthcare system has moved from uh, no matter what, you can come and get help, kind of like the church, to uh, if you're good, you can come and get help. Does that make sense? Because even when people are saying we need to get back on with other surgeries by not having to deal with this stuff, it's not like they're saying, well, we'll we'll do surgery for people if you haven't been a long-term smoker or we'll help you with medicine as long as you didn't get in a car accident where you're at fault. And usually we don't judge the people coming through the door until they're better. (laughs) But now we've changed our culture to you do get to actually decide whether people are worthy of help based on their life choices. And that's a grievous change to me, it seems like. And again, I'm not, you can have your, your opinions, but maybe just hear that little one as well. Like, is bitterness involved in that? Maybe, maybe there's my question. What is bitterness? We're going to look at two stories. We're going to look at the story of Naomi, and then we're going to look at the story of this guy named Shimei. Does anybody know who Naomi is? Put up your hand. Doing a biblical knowledge test. Okay, does anybody know who Shimei is? Yes! You will learn something this morning. I think you could say a lot of things about bitterness, but I think there's two perspectives you could look at it. It's, this is from, from me at least. It's hopelessness that's based on hurt, and it's vengefulness that's based on victimhood. And sometimes one is emphasized over the other, but I think bitterness, bitterness of heart, when we experience bitterness, when I experience bitterness, it's often either one or the other of these or a blend of both. It's a hopelessness that's based on hurt. And so it's very hard to look at the future with any kind of Jesus reality-based hope, or it's kind of a vengefulness that's based on victimhood. Uh, I've been hurt and I want some payback, or how do I fight back? Does that make sense? And bitterness can either emphasize one or the other or be a good blend of the both. And Naomi's story is going to be mostly focused on the first one, and Shimmy is going to be mostly based on the second one. But I think that, you know, if you look at the wider culture in North America and perhaps the world, you can see both of these factors really inflaming conversation. And a lot of conversation that should just be statistical bunch of really like calm doctors talking about statistical results from things and that's it's not just statistics and choices and stuff it's very inflamed with fear based on hopelessness because of possible hurt or expected hurt and a sense of right for vengefulness based on perceived victimhood you can judge that's my perspective you can have your own perspectives all right 
clear so far? One, um, one just a, uh, I should let you know that my personality type actually does struggle with bitterness quite a lot. This is um, a character flaw and a temptation that I have to be very careful with and often don't succeed in dealing well with. But I think all of us are probably have areas in our life where we're susceptible to bitterness. Like many of us might feel like we're very easygoing people, right? We're very chill, chill with the kids, chill with politics. And then somebody forgets our birthday and they're dead to us or something like that, right? Like where, it's, I think it's good to not think I'm not a bitter person. It's like, where am I vulnerable to this? And some of us are very vulnerable to political bitterness. Some of us don't care at all. Some of us are very vulnerable to church bitterness. Some of us don't care at all. Some of us are very vulnerable to uh, family bitterness. There's so many families being torn apart by this stuff right now. We're vulnerable. All of a sudden, someone says, why aren't you vaccinated? And, and the response is, and on my third birthday, you never, you know, all the family bitterness is coming up. And so I would invite us prayerfully with the Holy Spirit not to ask, like, am I a bitter person? But where am I vulnerable to this? That's probably the wise thing to do. So let's talk about Naomi. I've called this Miss Mara. And so we're going to read this together. You might remember the background is that Naomi is an Israelite. And there's a time of famine with her people. And so they leave their homeland to go to the country of Moab looking for... uh, to go on business. It's essentially, they're just like, business is dried up where we are. We're going to go somewhere else. We're going to go and live there. And probably they were thinking, with, in the history of God's people, when God's people had to leave because there was a famine, they usually got blessed where they were and they came back rich. That happened with Abraham a lot. There'd be a famine and he would leave and go somewhere. And then someone would try to steal his wife. And when he got his wife back, the guy who tried to steal his wife would say, sorry, sorry, sorry. And here's all this gold and all these servants and all these donkeys. And he would come back richer than when he went out. And the biggest story of this would be with the Exodus where God's people, the 70 70 family members of God's people go down to, to Egypt because of a famine. And 400 years later, they come out of Egypt, a mighty nation having plundered Egypt and taking all the gold and riches out of Egypt as God destroyed it. So they probably have this faith. There's a famine in the land. We're going to go into Moab and something's going to happen and we're going to come back stinking rich. But instead what happened was that Uh, Naomi's husband died, and we don't know why. And then in order to kind of move forward with life, her two sons both got married to Moabite women, which was probably not something they were excited about. Jewish people wanted to have their children marry other Jewish people to keep it all in the family. But here they are in Moab, and they're stuck. They can't go back and get a daughter, so they're just marrying the people of the land. And then the two sons eventually die, and here's Naomi. She's gone into Moab hoping to come back rich, and she's lost all of her blood family and is, quote-unquote, stuck with these daughters-in-law. And on the way back to Israel, she starts trying to compel them not to come with her. And it says this, this is verse 8 of chapter 1, But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughter. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that you may that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were full grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? And so this is what's going on there. The cultural expectation would be that if the women were staying in the household, they would have to marry other sons in the household in order to perpetuate the lineage of the first husbands. In Jewish times, it was required to try to keep the land in the family that if the women remarried, someone would have to provide a son for the guy who died and the child would inherit the land that would belong to the father who died before the child was born. And so Naomi's saying to, to these ladies, even if I got married 
tonight, you're at least, you know, 15 years away from being able to get remarried. You, we're not going to Israel so you could just find some other stud muffin to marry. So, so she says, I, I don't have hope. And you shouldn't either. No, my daughters, it is exceedingly bitter. There's the key word for me. For your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your daughter-in-law, this would be Naomi, your daughter-in-law, sorry, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge, and your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And then Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, and she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? And they, she said to them, Do not call me Naomi. I think which meant pleasure or pleasant. But call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. So Mara means bitter. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? When the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So as I was saying, part of bitterness is often when, when you've been hurt to the point of losing hope. And you can see that so deeply in Naomi's speech. She's still a believer. One of the things about the book of Ruth that's really interesting is that there's no prophet telling us God says this or God does that. It's just a story. But you can tell a bit where people are at and what God's doing by when the characters are talking about God. And the other person, the, the three people who talk about the Lord the most in this story are Ruth and Boaz and Naomi. And it's meant to be a sign to us that these are people who have a living faith and they know God. And you can hear when Naomi's talking to her daughters-in-law, she's blessing them. She doesn't, even though she's so hurt, she doesn't say to the daughters-in-law, get out of my stinking life, you so's and so's, or this is all your fault, you Moabite women. She doesn't curse them. She blesses them. Even when she's sending them away in her bitterness, she's praying over them. May the Lord do good to you. May you find some happiness somewhere else. But she's so deeply hurt by the death of her husband, and her two sons before her sons were able to have children with their daughters. She's devastated. And she renames herself bitter because she can't help but see life through the lens of being crushed by God. I went away full. And the Lord has brought me back empty. That's her. That's the expression of her bitterness. Now, truthfully, she went away because she felt empty. And she was hoping to get full in Moab. But the calamities that God allowed to happen to her while she was there made Dealing with the famine looked like nothing compared to dealing with the grief and the loss in her family. And so you can see she's crushed. Anybody ever felt like this before? Where you just cannot see how something good could come in the future. Now, one thing I would like to point out is that there is this culture clash between the Old Testament culture and our current culture that you can kind of feel sometimes when you're reading this. Nowadays with us, if we caught somebody saying, the Lord has dealt bitterly with me, or the Lord has crushed me, 
or the Lord has struck me, we would, we would usually rebuke them for their unbelief. We would say, no, God would never do anything like that. And I think it's just good to notice that Naomi isn't getting rebuked by people for saying, God has let this stuff happen or God has done this stuff. And the Hebrew people and the Hebrew storytellers would often see themselves as living much closer to the will of God in their lives than we do. Where if something bad happens, they would say, God, you let this bad stuff happen right away. Sometimes they would point to other people as well. But very often they're kind of in God's face about good and bad right away. And we tend to live a little bit more think This is what I don't deserve. And then sometime you might get around to talking to God about it. Right? Does that make sense? Good stuff happens, I earned this. If bad stuff happens, somebody else did this. And maybe I'll get around to talking to God about it. But Naomi is living so close to God that right or wrong or theologically 100% accurate or not, when something bad happens, she's all up in God's grill about it first. Does that make sense? Do you see that? And it's completely obvious from how God deals with Naomi that he does not resent the way she's talking about him right here. She is by no means punished. By, by going to God with her bitterness in her speech. Sorry, I just needed a little loading screen there for a second. My rainbow circle was spinning. Okay, we're going to leave Naomi for a second. We're going to go on to Shemai. There is a connection here. Because if you know the story, Ruth is going to meet Boaz. Naomi is going to play matchmaker for Ruth and Boaz. Boaz is going to see that Ruth is a pretty great gal. Boaz is going to take the role of the redeemer and marry Ruth in order to redeem her from her widowhood. And Ruth is going to bear a child for Boaz that they're going to place on Naomi's knee. And that child is going to be, I think, either the grandfather or the great-grandfather of King David. King David is going to have a very hard life. King David, at a very young age, is going to be anointed by the prophet Samuel to be the king of Israel, which sounds like a really great deal, unless Samuel has already anointed somebody else to be king. And there's two people anointed king at the same time, and the first guy anointed king named Saul is a bit of a psychopath. Except when he's being a total psychopath. Saul had two options. Kind of psychopath and all-out psychopath. Which means it's not actually the best deal to be anointed king to replace the first psychopath. True facts? Well, eventually David does replace King Saul. And even David's adult life is very hard. Strangely, David did better when he was being persecuted by Saul than he did once Saul had died and David had become king. And you'll remember there was this great fiasco where David ends up having an affair with a woman named Bathsheba, who was the wife of one of David's personal bodyguards, and David gets this guy killed in order to hide the fact that he's impregnated his bodyguard's wife. And eventually what happens, one thing leading to another, is that one of David's older sons leads a rebellion against David to try to take away the kingship from him. His name's Absalom. And David is actually chased out of Jerusalem by his, I think, second-born son, maybe third. Don't quote me on that quite yet. Because Absalom wants to kill David because David didn't do anything when David's old son, Amnon, uh, raped Absalom's sister. Complicated? Is your life that complicated? Anyhow, when David is getting chased out of Jerusalem, this guy named Shimei, 
who is a family member of the Saul, the King Saul that David has replaced, comes along for his whatever, his ministry. I like to refer to people sometimes as having a shimei ministry where they've collected all the bad things somebody's ever done and wants to let them know about it. This is 2 Samuel 16, verse 5 and following. When King David came to Baharim, so he's fleeing Jerusalem while Absalom's attacking, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And as he came out, he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right Sorry, and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said, as he cursed, Get out! Get out, you man of blood, you worthless man! The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of all the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood." So if you can just picture it, King David, he's older, but he's literally surrounded by Navy SEALs. And this guy, Shimei, he's probably standing up above them a little bit. He is just throwing fistfuls of gravel. You know, you go to the park, and there's that one kid. And sometimes it's your kid. Why why do they even do pea gravel at the park? Everything gets dusty, and someone's going to get in trouble. So Shimei's that kid, he's throwing dirt, he's throwing pea gravel at them, and he is just letting loose. Do you think all these feelings that are in Shimei just popped up that morning? Then Abishai, the son of Zariah, and this is a family member of the king, but this is his, like, this is his American sniper Navy SEAL. He said to the king, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. Don't you want a friend like that? (laughs) Who's just kind of like, I could just cut his head off. You know, a problem solver, a fixer. (laughs) Some of you probably watch The Sopranos. I don't, but this, there's... This is Luca Brasi, you know what I mean? Like, sorry, weird reference. He's like, well, I should just whack him. That's the kind of thing we're talking about here. Give him some concrete overshoes. They'll never find the body. Okay, moving on. But the king said, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah? Just look at this response. If he is cursing, because the Lord has said to him, curse David, who then shall say, why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be, okay, here's the triple underline, highlight and bold. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me, And that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and all his men went on the road. While Shimei went along on the hillside opposite him. And cursed as he went. And threw stones. You know it's just a regular Thursday afternoon. Cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him. Arrived weary at the Jordan. And there he refreshed himself. I think this story emphasizes, excuse me, that kind of bitterness where you have a heart for vengeance because you feel victimized. And here's Shimei, and he's, he's into politics, okay? You're into politics, he's into politics. And as far as he's concerned, the wrong guys are in office. Because Shimei is related to the old king. And Shimei should have somebody who's a descendant of Saul on the throne so that Shimei can go to him and get stuff for free from the guy who's king because they're family. And Shimei is ticked that David kept killing all of his family members instead of getting killed by his family members, which was what is supposed to happen. David was supposed to die so that Shimei could be in political power. 
right? And he doesn't care that Saul committed mass murder against a priest of Nob. He doesn't care that Saul consulted a necromancer at the end of his life. He doesn't care about anything bad that Saul ever did. He just cares about the bad stuff David's done because David's in the wrong spot. And so when when David's sins, and they were really big sins, and David's faults and unbelief, and they were really big faults and unbelief, when they finally catch up with him, and these years of not dealing with things well finally catch up with David, and David's on the run, now is Shimei's time to let loose on perhaps decades of bitterness. The cursing, the stone throwing, and the doing it in the name of the Lord. Shimei is out there saying, the Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul. Now this is interesting because the Lord is definitely disciplining David, but it's not because of what David did to Saul. You might remember, actually, that David twice had the opportunity to kill Saul, once in a cave and once when when Saul was asleep, and he didn't do it. He said, eventually, if something's going to happen to Saul, it's going to be God who does it. And it was. Weirdly, Shimei is after David for what he didn't do wrong, even though David did mountains of wrong things. But because he's bitter, he can't see straight at all. And he thinks he's being the the vengeance of the Lord when actually he's just messed up. You don't want to be a shimmy. Because it didn't turn out really well for him. Because... A few days or weeks later, Absalom is dead, and David's coming back to Jerusalem, and Shimei has his uh-oh moment. And Shimei actually comes to David and, and humbles himself and says, whoops. And David lets him off the hook. But later on, you might remember when Solomon reigns in David's place, Solomon, who's super smart and super tricksy, gets this deal with Shimei where he calls him into Jerusalem and he says, you're a bad dude. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set you up that if you've repented and you're not bad anymore, you're going to be okay. You can come and live in Jerusalem and you can live, but if you leave Jerusalem, you're dead. And Shimei's like, oh, it's so good, so good, this is good, I'll do whatever you say. And then his donkeys run away and he goes after him. And because he didn't keep his promise, Solomon has him put to death. But you can see in these two people, Naomi crushed by the circumstances of life, even in her faith, Shimei embittered and vengeful because of the circumstances of life, expressing it with his bitterness. These are big deals. And I think it happens to all of us. Anybody ever struggle with this? Yeah? So we need to be free. Ultimately, this is the good news. Our Lord Jesus Christ died for sin. Died for our sin. Died to forgive other people's sin. And died to have the right to set us free from bitterness that even might come our way because we've been sinned against. So we can come to our Savior Jesus to get free from bitterness. He has the power to cleanse our hearts from this stuff. And this is our hope. 
that when we come to Jesus, he can set us free. Because we don't want to be like Naomi when we're stuck just living underneath the bad things of life. And we definitely don't want to end up like a shimmy where we're just carrying around cursing and stones, kind of waiting for the day to let loose on that person who's been doing all that stuff for so long and getting away with it. But then there'll be a day when they aren't anymore and will be the ones. You don't want to be that guy. So with our eyes on Jesus, looking for the Holy Spirit to set our hearts free, and I want to go first, because I need it. Number one, when it comes to bitterness, we can start seeing our own sin in it instead of memorizing the other person's sins. Do you remember Shimei? He, he knew everything wrong David had ever done. And when the moment to express it came, he was right there to say, you did this wrong, you did this wrong, this wrong. This is one of the ways we can know we're being tempted or entrapped in bitterness is that we've got a good memory of everything that person's ever done wrong. And somebody said once, and I think it's really wise, one of the things that makes bitterness such a trap is that, you know, if I sin by stealing, I remember the thing I took. And if I... Sin by, sin by kicking the dog, I remember how good it felt to kick the dog. But when you sin in bitterness, you're not thinking about what you've done wrong, getting resentful, getting vengeful. You're memorizing what the other person's done wrong. And so it can be such an invisible sin because you're always thinking about how the other person hurt you instead of how I responded badly with resentment or anger or malice or any of that stuff. And so we need to, we need grace and we need grace-led effort to stop just seeing what the other person did and start seeing our own sin and our response to it and trying to focus on that so that I can get free. Number two, we can focus on forgiveness instead of spreading our criticism. I think bitterness ultimately is an unforgiveness issue. And when we're not, this is similar to like keeping that records of wrong. When we're not moving in forgiveness, often you can tell you've got bitterness or I can tell I've got bitterness because I'm constantly holding that trial in my mind, right? Like, it's just like, dun, 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 dun. It's I'm just living in law and order. And sometimes I'm the cop. I'm like, so where'd this body come from? Looks like two gunshots to the face. Known drug dealer. This is my cousin, you know. Um, you're either collecting the evidence or it's in the trial. Dun, dun. We want to wave habeas corpus for this. You know, you're in trial mode all the time. And so if you're, if in my head, I'm, I'm doing the lawyer thing, that's a sign of unforgiveness. And often, just like Shimei, you can't control what comes out of your mouth and that you can, there can be just be criticism coming out all the time about the person, but never to the person. If it's to the person in the heart of redemption, that's, that's fine. But if it's just about to look for unforgiveness. Point number three, ask God to help you see the hope that's right in front of you. And I want to go back here to um, Naomi. Because one of the craziest things about the story of Naomi, when she comes back to Bethlehem, this is so crazy. When she comes back to Bethlehem, and they're like, you're Naomi? Look at all those wrinkles. You can't be Naomi. She went out younger and came back weathered. You can't be Naomi. You look so crushed. And she's naming herself, I'm just bitter. The Lord's hand is against me. She's completely blind to the fact that this daughter-in-law Ruth that she has kind of just following behind her is literally one of the best human beings that's ever lived. One of the most godly, faithful, faith-filled, awesome women who ever walked on God's green earth has committed herself to Naomi to the death. She can't see it. 
That's crazy. Ruth is a woman of such honor that God literally sends Naomi out to Moab to go get her so that God can bring her back to Israel so that Ruth can be the great, 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 great grandmother of the Christ. And if there's anybody in the history of Jesus' genealogy who earned it, even though it's by grace, it's Ruth. Scripture does not have one bad thing to say about that woman. Unlike David, who got the promise. Scripture does not have one hint of a criticism against Ruth. And Naomi can't see it. And so one of the reasons we get stuck in bitterness is because we can't see the glory of God that is right behind us. Whatever the latest lockdown or the latest thing, or if this is the end times, or the the mark of the beast, six months, six weeks, six days, I don't care. Ruth is right behind you. Ruth is right behind you. Jesus is right behind you. The glory of God is right behind you. God's provision is right behind you. What God is going to do next is right behind you. He's right here. He's right here. There's always another Sunday coming. There's always another Sunday coming. There's always another Sunday coming. And the thing about bitterness for me is it takes my eyes off the Lord and puts on the problem so bad. And we need Jesus. Show me. Show me what you're doing. Show me the Lord. Amen? Show me the Lord. Show me God. Show me, show me, show me, show me. Show me you. Show me you. Show me you today. Show me you. And I think ultimately we need to practice. I need to practice. Oh, good glory. I need to practice entrusting myself to the Lord. I love those words of David. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. David knows that years of sin are catching up with him. And what's his attitude? Maybe, maybe God will bless me if I just, just go through this. Maybe God will bless me. Maybe God will bless me if I just entrust myself to the Lord. Maybe God will do good. I don't deserve it. Maybe God will do good. Maybe God will bless me. Maybe God will bless me. Maybe God will bless us. Maybe if we, if we don't fight back in a worldly way, but just say, it stinks. This is like an... How is there any dirt left anywhere in Manitoba This sucks so much? But maybe God will bless us. But maybe he'll bless us for being singled out today. That is an unbitter, unbitter way of responding to say, just if I can get the blessing of God from this, if, that's, if I can set myself up for a blessing, if I can set myself up for a blessing. That was David showing the way to not be embittered. So I'm going to invite the team up. I think it's a good time. I'm going to pray. I, th- I need this. I think we all need this. Father God, you know our hearts. You know where we're free and not free. You know where we're tempted by bitterness. You know where we're trapped in bitterness. You know, Lord, where we have forgiveness. You know where we have unforgiveness. You know where we have resentment. You know where we're free to bless. God, you know that bitterness is one of these sins that we don't see it. You see it, we don't see it. But God, in a world where being embittered is getting easier and easier every day, I pray, Lord, that you would deliver me that you would deliver us, you would deliver our church, and you would deliver each person here who hears this. God, we need a deliverance. Lord, I don't even want to pray for strength. I want to pray for a strong deliverer. 
I want the joy of the Lord to come and set people free. Lord, I want to see the glory of God in a way that makes the trials of this life smaller and bearable. God, I want you to show us the way to hope for your blessing in all circumstances. Father, Father, Father God, Father God, Father God, would you deliver us? Lord, where there's things that have been there for 30 years and it can't get fixed because people have gone or people are dead, may the God who went into death meet us in our spiritual deadness and bring resurrection power, bring healing, bring freedom. Lord, in a time where one of the most justified feelings is to be embittered against the other side, we have so much permission from the media and even the government sometimes to be embittered against the other side. God, deliver your people. Deliver your people. Deliver your people, Jesus. Don't take no for an answer. Don't take no for an answer. Jesus, deliver your people. Deliver your people. Take action, oh God, for our heart's sake. Lord, you want to dwell in hearts. You don't care about buildings. You don't care about homes. You want a, ho- you want a heart that's a pleasant place for you to dwell. Deliver our hearts. Deliver our minds, God. This is your home. These are your homes, Jesus. Lord, make us free to know how much you love us in these times. Let us be able to say with truth, because your love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Lord, deliver a people who are obsessed with the opinions and fear of man. To walk with God in heaven, but on the earth. Deliver your people, O God. God, where we've been hurt by people's words, Lord. They didn't know we were on the other side and they said something judgmental or spiteful. Deliver your people. Deliver your people. So we can have you. Walk with you, God. Deliver your people. Father, where there's been church junk and people pick sides. Deliver your people. Deliver your people. Deliver your people. Don't take no for an answer. Don't wait for us, God. Don't wait. Now's the time, Jesus. How much longer? Deliver your people. Meet us in our dreams, God. Meet us in random events. Meet us on the radio, God. Deliver your people. If we're watching anything that's unhelpful, Lord, any podcasts that are unhelpful, any news things that are unhelpful, deliver your people, oh God. I entrust my life to the only one who's worthy of it. Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. And amen.